Great. Well, good morning to you, Transit Church. Good morning. My name is Saju Matthew, and I am one of the elders uh, of the church. Um, unfortunately, our pastor Nick uh, uh, got sick a bit, so he had reached out to me yesterday and said he's just not feeling well. Um, it's not COVID, he said, but he said it's probably not a great idea for his own well-being to show up in church and uh, probably not going to make everybody comfortable to have someone stand up here and sneezing and coughing and uh, having flu-like symptoms. So anyway, please pray for him and his family as he recovers and gets better. Um, also, our, one of the other elders that we have here, uh, Joe Workman, is on a, a missions trip uh, to Lebanon right now. So I look forward to hearing, and he's planning to share some of his experiences when he comes back in a few days. Um, but with that, um, I'm here to be able to share God's word with you this morning. So um, we are going to continue where we have been, which is in the book of Acts. So last week, we took a little bit of a break because it was Easter Sunday, and we were able to just step away and focus on the resurrection story. And uh, today, we're coming back to the Acts story. So we've been looking at Acts now for a good part of this year. And we're in chapter 3, which is where we're going to pick up. And the book of Acts actually covers about 30 years worth of time. So it's the early church history time. So from the moment Jesus ascends into heaven, which happens at the very first chapter, to the last chapter of Acts, Acts 28, you cover a 30-year time span. So in that 30-year time span, what you see is, how does a church actually form and start? And what does the world look like post-Jesus' resurrection and ascension into heaven? And, and how does this all come together? And so we have been uh, journeying through that. And chapter 3, we're really just a few months into that 30 years. So as I said, Acts covers about 30 years. We're still in the first few weeks, the first few months of that early time period. So let me just give you a reminder, and then we can go to prayer and, and focus on our section. Reminder is, in Acts chapter 3, this is where we left off. This chapter starts with Peter and John wanting to go to the temple to pray. It says at 3 in the afternoon. And as they go, they see a man who's a beggar, who's someone who's been there you know, for years, I think up to 40 years, and he, and he begs them for something. What he's asking for is, can you give me some money? And they say, look, we don't have any gold or silver, no money, but here's what I do have. In the name of Jesus, get up and walk. And in that instant, it says that this man, who had never walked because he was born a cripple, leapt to his feet and he jumps up and down and he's praising God and the people are reacting to that and the man decides to walk into the temple with Peter and John to go pray and and you see the the sort of reaction and the commotion of that and that is where we're going to pick up today is how does the community around the temple react to this miraculous healing that's taken place so let me just pray for us and then we can open up our passage Father, uh, you are intentional about everything. So today is intentional, your life is intentional. These words and these books are very carefully selected and intentional for us. So if you are that intentional, then we want to be intentional to pay attention, to receive what you're offering to us. There's goodness in there for us. There's life. There's words of healing and um, salvation. There's hope. There's things that turn us and make us repent, Lord. There's encouragement. Our own story is weaved into the story of the early church, so help us to experience that and see that. And the same Holy Spirit who was moving in the church in those early years 
is residing within us and moving here in this church, in this place. So we come with our hands open to receive what you have to offer, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, let's now turn to chapter 3, verses 11 onwards. Um, you're going to see the verses on the screen. So let's look at a couple of those verses, and then uh, we'll, we'll read that. So here's what it says. While he clung to Peter and John, the he is the man who was healed, right? The, the, the crippled man. While he, saw, while he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, and I'm going to focus on that, utterly astounded, ran together to them to the portico called Solomon's Colonnade. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him to walk? So that's where the text starts us off is all the people, it says, rush out. They are utterly astounded. And I have the, the New Living Translation here. And the way that it says it here is they all rushed out in amazement. So let's start there. All of them rushing out in amazement. Remember, they're at the temple, right? They're, they're inside that, that temple area, and it's massive structure. You know, it's huge. So let's get into the context of that. The people that are inside the temple, they must be people who are religious-minded. I mean, that's where they decide to show up, right, on that day. They're spending their time in worship, right? They're spending their time thinking about spiritual matters. That's what they're concerned about. So obviously these are people to whom the things of God matter. The teachings of the scripture, worship, holiness, you know, understanding the spiritual realm is important to this community. So the people that are coming in is there. It doesn't happen in a shopping mall. It doesn't happen outside of a pub. I just want us to be able to say these are people who are already interested or concerned on religious things. They must have rhythms and habits and prayers in their life because this matters to them. And in that way, a lot like you and I maybe. Because here we are. On a Sunday morning, you're here. The things of the Bible, right? The worship, God. These are not things that you don't you ignore, but it matters to you. You're interested in it. You want to know more about it. You want to lean into that stuff. Even in a time of COVID challenges, you're trying to find and figure out ways to gather together and make this work and be in a church and, and understand and, and draw closer to this. And so that's what it says here. They rushed out in amazement. So here's my question, because later Peter goes on in verse 12 to say one other thing. Why are you surprised at this? What is so surprising about this? Two questions there. He says they were utterly astounded, right? They were amazed. And then Peter says, why are you surprised at this? So I guess the first thing we have to wrestle with is, is it reasonable to be amazed? Isn't that reasonable? Isn't that a, isn't that a fair reaction to what they just experienced, what they just saw? That's an interesting question, and we're going to spend a, few, a little bit of our time on that. If you remember the story of the women who went to anoint Jesus' body in the tomb after his death, and, and Nick, when he was preaching, he made this really, really quick point, but, but, but just struck me. You know, they went to anoint Jesus' body as was their rituals, as was their tradition, but they couldn't find his body, right? And then they searched and they couldn't find it, and then two men came and said, who are you looking for, this Jesus of Nazareth that you're looking for? He's not here, right? 
And, and later, Jesus himself appears to Mary Magdalene, and it takes Mary a while to realize it. But the point that Nick made that really struck me is, the last thing they expected to find when they went there was a living Christ. Even though they took great pain to show up, right? Even though this was something that was important to them and he mattered to them, the last thing they expected was that God himself would actually be there or show up. And in some ways, the last thing the people at this temple may have expected was for God to actually show up. Really? Is he here? That's amazing. And he's doing stuff? That can't be the case. So when Peter asked that question, what is so surprising about this, right? What does being amazed say about them? Well, what does it say about us? Maybe in some ways we're amazed because our starting expectations are already pretty low, right? We start from a point of, I'm not really expecting much anyway. So, you know, maybe that's, and why do we do that? Maybe we can talk about that a little bit. Because, you know, I think the challenge of our life is, and I've heard this phrase 20 years ago in a movie called God is an Absentee Landlord. You know, and it just struck me. It was a movie called Devil's Advocate, and it was mocking, uh, mocking God for not showing up. And he said, yeah, well, God is an absentee landlord, and I haven't forgotten that. If you think about when you have an apartment, if you have an apartment and you're dealing with those things, an absentee landlord is, is a description of your pipes are not working, your heat's not working, your light is not working, your, your fridge is not, but there's nobody showing up. There's nobody coming in. You're making the phone calls. You're telling them to come in. You're complaining. You're raising your voice. But there is nobody showing up to help you out. And that's a little bit of the way that we think that God is. I heard this sort of humorous story, this one pastor say, which is, imagine being on a flight and you're flying and there's all kinds of turbulence and all kinds of, and it seems a little scary and people are getting nervous and all of a sudden the pilot walks out of the cockpit, he takes on a parachute, he straps it on his back, he opens the door and they say, where are you going? He says, I'm going to get some help, I'll be right back. <laughs> we sort of feel like God is left to get some help. When is he coming back? You know, what's, and you know what the psychology of low expectation is? Well, low risk of getting hurt. I can't be hurt, I can't be let down if I started by not expecting that much from you, right? It's a safe way to navigate through these things. And it's the bruisings and the pains and the experiences of being let down by the things of this world that make us start to wonder, maybe that's the posture I should have towards God himself. I'm not going to ask for anything too audacious. That's going to make me look stupid. It's going to make me look silly. Why would I, why would I do something like that, right? And there's a, there's a positive way of sort of defining low expectation, which is, very pragmatic, you know? It even can look like wisdom, can't it? Because you're steady, you're unflappable. Yeah, because you try to live only in the realm of what you can control. The moment it's outside of those boundaries, you don't want to go venture anywhere near that. And the consequences of low expectation is our imagination starts to die out. We don't have visions, we don't have dreams, we don't become people who want to change the world because those things, that'll never change. It's always been this way. It's always broken. Leave it alone. It's going to stay that way. And I guess the question I have for myself and for you is, do you think God doesn't show up in radical ways 
So you've adjusted down your expectations, or because you don't expect much, he doesn't have room to show up in our lives. So Peter says, what is so surprising about this? I mean, this man has been crippled for 40 years. He's been lying there. Everybody probably has passed by into the temple knows this from birth. And suddenly he's leaping up. Isn't that, isn't that okay to be surprised by it? On the other hand, I think he's challenging us to say, haven't you been paying attention to what's going on the past few weeks, past few months? Haven't you seen the power of God moving and you're surprised by this? Or the past three years, haven't you heard of this man, Jesus? Have you not been paying attention to what has been happening across Israel? Or even the past 2,000 years? Do you not know your own history? And we'll get to that in a little bit. But he says something here. Let's put up that, that verse again, verse 12. He says this thing. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us? Why do you stare at us as though we were the cause? Why are you looking at us as though we did something? And, he, and he's quick to say, no, no, no. It's not us. It's not me. It's not that. You know, one of the things that I've seen is often in the quest for answers, many times we, or even people in general, are not willing to go beyond the bounds of their initial assumption. You're not willing to go beyond your existing beliefs, so you'll find a way to explain away things. And Jesus actually said this when he told a parable. He told, it wasn't actually a parable, I think it was a story. He told the story of the rich man and Lazarus, right? You remember that story? Both had died, and Lazarus was in Abraham's bosom, but the rich man was in hell, and he was thirsty, and he was begging for Lazarus to come and at least give a drop of water. He was begging Abraham, just have Lazarus come and give a drop of water to me. And he has more conversation than he asks for something. He goes, I have five brothers, the rich man says. Please, please send someone to them so that they won't end up here and they will know the truth. And Abraham says something really fascinating there. He says, look, even if someone were to come back from the dead, that's not going to convince them. That's not going to convince them. You see, it's not evidence it's not proof that we're lacking. It's a wall that we've built out where we explain away the proofs that are hitting us all day long. The world only wants to attribute natural causes to the things that they see, nothing supernatural. In fact, we have figured out in this world how to make sense of reality by completely eliminating anything supernatural, right? And that's why you see this weird tension between science and religion. Science is something so beautiful because it should help us that, oh my gosh, that's further proof that there must be a God behind it. What is science? Science is the study of natural and physical world, right? The natural things, the physical things. How? Through observation, measurement, right? It's things you can see and measure. That's what science is. By that very definition, science is incapable of saying anything about the existence of God. But unfortunately, because science can't measure it, science can't prove it, the world has come to a place where it thinks it's silly to believe in God. Oh my gosh, aren't you a people of science? Haven't you gotten to a place where you can now see the factual, logical, systematic way it all measures up? It's all explainable. There's no reason for you to have a mystical belief in an invisible God. It all makes sense. 
But the challenge of the world is it goes more than that, beyond the observable. It then starts to answer questions about life, about humanity, about community, family, relationships, purpose. So here is a world that has completely denies the supernatural, answering the complicated questions about who we are and why we exist and how we relate to one another. Oh my goodness. When we look at that, look what's happening. Look what's happening. When we try to understand marriage through the lens of there is no God, gender through the lens of there is no God, parenting, identity, fairness and equality, all of these concepts, but no God in that, no sin in that, no brokenness in that, no redemption from that in that. The world is so confused, but yet feels so clear. I was watching a CNN news story the other day, and I couldn't believe it. It said, it is impossible to tell the gender of a child at birth. It is impossible to tell that. But really, I feel like the very first thing the doctor says is, it's a boy. It's a girl. It seems like it takes seconds for them to be able to determine that. But that's the headline of it. It is impossible. Now, it seems silly to us. It seems silly to most of the world, and everybody's probably going to be sort of laughing at that. But I challenge you to watch about a year from now. People are going to say, maybe. Maybe it is impossible. You see, in some ways what we're doing is we're trying to understand something. Like, I don't understand how this thing is put together. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take it apart. And I'm going to take it apart, take it apart, and eventually inside the pieces, I'll probably be able to understand how it works. Deconstruction is the way the world tries to explain purpose and meaning. And C.S. Lewis had this really helpful quote about this that I wanted to take a look at. Here's what he said. You cannot go on seeing through things, through things forever. The whole point of seeing through it, it is good that the window should be transparent. You don't want a dirty window, and you don't want a window that's got, you know, color paint on it, because the street or the garden beyond it is opaque. How if you saw through the garden too? It is no use trying to see through first principles. If you see through everything, then everything is transparent. But a wholly transparent world is an invisible world. To see through all things is the same as to not see at all. He says it so beautifully and so well. You can deconstruct all of these things. Inside of it, you're not going to find the truth, the answers, the purpose, the sense. You're just looking and trying to see through it, but that's not it, that's not it, that's not it. Well, you're going to keep seeing it, and eventually... You just see nothing. And that's sort of the wrestling of the reality. And I encourage us as a church to be careful in letting the unbelieving world out there set expectations, right? Or, or that th that is how we then begin to anticipate and think about things. Because God meets us in supernatural ways. I mean, what if, what if we, because we know Jesus is real, because we know that the Spirit of God lives inside of us, what if we lived a little more out there, right? Beyond our expectations. What if we let the supernatural invade into this natural realm? What would it look like, right? 
I mean, isn't that what huge chunks of the book of Acts is all about? It's about how the supernatural God is coming closer and closer to the point where he's inside of us. Like a mighty rushing wind, this is happening into Christians. He's saying, do you believe this? Are you awake? Are we letting a sleeping world be the one that's defined as what is woke? Right? And are they the ones defining our culture, our values, our belief? Have we abdicated those things away because we find it easier to have a life of low expectations? Well, Peter, it says, it continues, he saw the opportunity. Can we put verse 12 back up again? <clears throat> I just want to pause a second on this. He says, <clears throat> um, the, the last one there. One more back, yeah. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the crowd. Now, I bought the New Living Translation because I like the way that the verse 12 starts off. He says this, it says it here this way. Peter saw his opportunity and addressed the crowd. Okay? It's not as clear in this one in the way it said it. Peter, Peter saw it and he addressed it, but I like this. It says he saw his opportunity. I just want to pause for a second on that because you know what? That means that when he stood up and speak, spoke, he wasn't just like stumbling into it. He was wanting it. He was thinking about it. He wanted to have conversations with his countrymen. He wanted to have dialogue with the religious leaders. He was looking to see if an opportunity like that would come up with the, with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and those people in positions of authority. So I just like that in one sense you see is Peter is like actually coming in and wanting to have this conversation. So when we look at what Peter says, I want us to understand this. This is not just something he's throwing out there. But he's pondered on this. The truth and the weight of this and the heaviness of it that you're going to hear in a second. He's thought about it before he threw it out there because it is pretty heavy. Let's look at the next slide, verses 13 onwards. <clears throat> he says this, he said, The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses." Hey, Peter, we were just asking, like, how is this guy walking? I'm not sure I wanted to get into all that. But Peter was seeing this as an opportunity, and he had something to say. He wanted to talk to them, right? And he starts, we can leave that, that verse up. Let's leave the verse up on um, the first one, yeah. There you go. He starts where? He said, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's saying, look, I don't want you to dismiss Jesus as some sort of a fad. He's not a modern-day sort of come here now and then disappears type of a thing. This goes all the way back to the beginning. The Jesus goes all the way back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So he starts giving them, what, a history lesson. He says, I'm going to take you back to the beginning. And I want to let you know that God, that God who called your forefathers, your ancestors, he's the one who glorified Jesus. He's the one who raised Jesus from the dead. And you are the ones who had a chance to let him be free because Pilate didn't even want to kill him. He was going to let him go, but you said no. In fact, you decided that a murderer should be released so that Jesus could be killed. And he uses the line in the next slide that you see here, what? He says, the author of life. You killed the author of life. 
How is that even possible, right? Like, this is the one who gives life. You tried to kill the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. And to this, we are witnesses. Man, I mean, that smacks you of, that's an indictment. That's a charge sheet of any prosecutor ever had to stand up there and read something because that's pretty hard to put behind you. Peter is saying, look, I'm going to get these facts to you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you know, you know what really happened because we are not going to try to rewrite history. We're not going to rewrite the story. We're not going to soft-pedal it. We're not going to try to reinvent it. We're going to say it as is because all of us who stand here, myself and John, right, we are aware of what happened. You see, God is the one that is glorifying Jesus the same Jesus that you and your leaders killed. And he goes on to say, it is the Messiah. You killed the Messiah. And yet God raised him back from the dead. And I think it's heavy words, you know, for these people to hear. But I think this is the thing that Peter has been thinking about. He said, you can't start without having a conversation about heavy and important and honest things. You got to start with reality. You've got to live in the facts of the reality of what happened. And he puts it out there. Now, we'll get back to that in a second, and I'll show you why, I think, in, in, after this next passage, why it's important for him to start that way. But then he goes back to the, the other thing. Let's look at, let's look at this uh, next slide there. Verse uh, 16 onwards. And in his name, right, it's in Jesus' name, this Jesus who you crucify, who you put to death, in his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man the perfect health in the presence of you all. Right? So he's saying, look, you want to answer to the question that you're curious about? The reason this man is no longer lame, the reason this man is standing up, is because of Jesus. And he says it very interestingly, not just Jesus, but the name of Jesus. Right? That's pretty powerful when it's not the person that's powerful. Their name itself is powerful, right? He's saying something here. Look, you thought he was history. You thought Jesus was gone. You thought that chapter of our, our world and our times had passed. He's still alive. And he doesn't have to be physically here, but his name alone is acting and has power, power to allow a man to walk again who hasn't. And these rabbinical uh, priests, you know, especially in, the in these times, they understood what he was saying because once you write down God's name, you never erase it. So they're very, very careful about writing scriptures and copying scriptures. You made sure you made no mistake. In fact, when they wrote God's name, you left out the vowels, right? because you didn't want to say his name. He was that holy. They understood the power of the name of God, and they're saying, that is the name. Jesus is the name by which this man is healed. His power reaches that far. You know what's interesting? It doesn't tell us, he says, by faith in his name. It doesn't tell us whose faith. It doesn't seem like it was the faith of the crippled man, right? Because he doesn't seem to be, he was asking for money. Right? So here's one length even more. It's faith that Peter and John had in who Jesus is. And they say it, and it's healed. 
So someone else's faith, just in the name of Jesus, can have supernatural results in your life. Isn't that powerful? That is amazing. That is what we call far-reaching power. That is why we pray. That is why we pray for things that we are, it is beyond us. Because there is true power in it. Our faith, it doesn't have to be the, the, the lack of faith of that person. Our faith is able to carry and heal and intervene in that situation. And we must understand the power that God is offering just by revealing Jesus' name to us. That we would know that. And we could call on that. And that he would respond. And that he would meet us there. Let's look at uh, verse 17 onward. So I'm going to come back to that accusation that Peter made, but here's the context for it. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive, unto the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Go back to the previous uh, slide there and look at the way Peter says it. And now, brothers, right? Friends, brothers, he said. And now, brothers, I know you acted in ignorance, as also did all your, all your leaders, your rulers did. But what God has foretold had to happen. And he used your actions to fulfill what Scripture had intended. And then he says in verse 19, repent and turn back. He offers hope. You see, imagine if someone comes to you and they say, listen, Jesus loves you and he will accept you and he'll forgive you. So come and receive him as your, as your savior. He will have space for you. What's the thing that goes on in your head probably? All the horrible things that you did. Oh my gosh, not me. That happened in my life. Are you sure Jesus has reached me, that person? Right? Before Peter offers them reconciliation and tells them to repent, he starts by letting them know, look, I know, I know who you really are. You were the ones who killed Jesus. You were the ones who had a chance to let him go when Pilate wanted to let him go. He was the author of life and you decided that a murderer would be set free, then Jesus would, and we are witnesses of this fact. So now when Peter says to them, repent you did this out of ignorance you didn't realize it they know something it's like oh it's not except for me right because there's a massive crowd gathering it's like it's not the ones who are well we were never a part of the crucifixion piece okay maybe he's talking to us and the others sort of sheepishly have to walk away because ah, there's no way that i can ever ever receive that because i overstepped my boundaries right so maybe we, Peter was so harsh in verses 13 to 15 because he knew true forgiveness for their action was still available, but their tendency to think I must have forfeited it. 
And it's just really important for us to understand there is no way that sin can separate us from the love and the forgiveness of God. There is no line that you can cross by which you can say, I've gone too far. I'm beyond the reach of Jesus' love and grace. That is just not true. And Peter is telling the very ones who are responsible for murdering Jesus to say, you have not gone far too far. I call you brothers. I call you friends. Come and repent. Grace is available to them as grace is available to us. But we have to repent. We have to repent and turn away. But he offers that to them and says, that is waiting for you. That is the, is the invitation that's set before them. In many ways, the invitation set before us. You know, I think the thing with repentance is we struggle. We struggle a lot, a lot with that because we can't. We, we we seem to have a a challenge understanding. Why am I sinning if I love Jesus? I can't understand that, right? I don't know if you wrestle with that. And Paul wrestled with that. He wrote a whole book of Romans about it. Chapter 7 and 8, he goes, oh my gosh, why do I do the things I don't want to do and I don't do the things I want to do? Oh, wretched man am I. What hope is there? He said, thanks be to Jesus Christ, right, who can save me. What is he saying? What's happening there? Well, you and I have this, 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 this conflict in the sense of two laws operating in us. One is the law of flesh, Right? But then there's the law of the Spirit. You see, when you get saved, and I think sometimes you know we mix this up, when you get saved, what happens? It's your spirit at that moment that is saved. Your spirit is completely saved at that moment. Right? What about your soul? What about your being? Your soul is being saved. Right? It's an ongoing process of being sanctified and being saved. What about your body? God says, oh, I promise you a new body. Right? You will have a new body one day. But what about my desires? That's what's getting me into trouble. Well, desires can't be tamed. Desires are desires, and desires are going to stay desires. It is what it is. In fact, that's why Paul says, look, it isn't that you kind of lose your desires or change your desires, but you don't live in accordance with those desires, right? It's that those desires are not the things that control you. How? How is that possible, right? And I'm, I'm talking about repentance here. Well, when you set your mind on the things of the flesh, it leads to death. But when you set your mind on the things of the spirit, right, when you're focusing on those things, it leads to life. One leads to corruption and decay and death. The other leads to life. So what are we supposed to do? We are supposed to because God has saved us. His spirit is in us. We're, we are, we're able to meditate and think and spend time in fellowship and community and prayer. What happens? The things of the spirit will be the things that attract us and we're further and further away from the desires that are carnal to us. Right? It isn't that the carnal stuff stops. So maybe I can explain it this way. Imagine that the, the, the law of the flesh is a law like the law of gravity, right? You know the law of gravity. If I drop this Bible, it's going to fall down. doesn't matter how high I drop it, whether I toss it up or not, it's eventually going to come down, right? Gravity is all, anything that goes up must come down, right? And that can't be broken. That can't be violated. But the law of the spirit is sort of like the law of aerodynamics. What's the law of aerodynamics? It says that when a certain object moves with a speed and a thrust, 
while it's not canceling the law of gravity, it's overriding the law of gravity, right? The law of gravity is still there. But when you are moving, right, in, with a certain force and a certain charge, aerodynamic overcomes the law of gravity. How do you know that? Well, if you're ever on a plane and you turn off the engine, what's, what's going to happen? The law of gravity is going to be there. So the law of gravity never went away. The desires of the flesh is not the thing that we have to worry about. We must have another law in there that comes in and overtakes it, overrides it, so that our desires are not the thing that controls us. And when Peter says this to them, he's saying it to all of us, repent by drawing near to the things of Jesus, spending time in those things that would give you life, and the Spirit will dominate your soul, and you'll find your soul moving in the direction of that which is of God. Let me close with the final portions of this, which is the, the last verses, 20, 22 onward. Here he says, this is what he says, He's, this Paul, uh, Peter is uh, saying, he says, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying with Abraham, and in your offering shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. You know what Peter is saying here? He's looking at the temple, which was the center of his universe to him at one time. He's looking at the religious leaders. He's looking at the worship that's happening. And he's saying, oh my gosh, we're about to miss the whole thing. My people whom you have called from the beginning, prophet after prophet that you have sent, and we're about to miss the whole thing. You can have the the worship team come up as we close with this point here. Can you imagine the heartbreak and the sadness that he has when he says, Israel, if you don't recognize the Messiah that was foretold by every single prophet from Moses to Samuel onwards, this was the very purpose for all of this. This temple was built for Jesus. All the worship that, was, that we've been doing, all the studying in the scriptures was to point us to Jesus. And he's seeing a crossroads that his, his people would be in. And this is what the book of Acts will journey us through. At that crossroads, what happens? The story starts to turn in a different direction into the Gentile lands. There are many who come to faith. Praise God. Many, many Jewish people. In the next chapter, we'll see that over 5,000 people come to faith. That's not the whole nation. This whole nation was created to be the oracle of the good news of the Messiah who is to come. And when the Messiah comes, they are rejecting it. Of course Peter is hot. Of course Peter is talking strongly to these religious leaders. Of course he's telling them, you are foolish. And we are witnesses of your foolishness. But repent. Please repent. Because for generations to come, that mistake, that blindness, that denial will do damage to our nation.
I think it's Peter, for the love of the Israelite people that he has, he's saying, please don't reject the good news that was sent to you. Please don't reject it. This is your opportunity. So the story will continue, and we'll continue studying through the book of Acts, but we will see at some point that God raises up a Paul who will go and share the gospel outside to anyone who will receive it. And that's Jesus' invitation. He's made a banquet. He's invited those that are dearest to him first. But if that's not what you want, his banquet table will be filled full. He will invite others. So our encouragement, our prayer, is that we would see the goodness and the truth. So if you're here, and maybe this is something you just haven't wrestled with, maybe you haven't thought about, I want to let you know that this is true. This God is real. His love is real. His spirit is available. His forgiveness is for us. Life everlasting is the gift that he offers. Life with him forever. He sacrificed it all because you were worth it. So if that's something that you have never made a commitment towards, I encourage you today where you are to receive Jesus. Just his name as you call on it, the power to heal has the power to come in and take residence inside of you. And for those of you that have, um, let us participate in this communion time together. So if you don't have it, go grab a communion wafer and, and, and wine or juice. It's sitting on the back out there. But let's just, before we take it, let's just think about what is it that we're holding and what is it that we're doing. Jesus wanted us to never, never, never forget love. Love so sincere, so deep, so committed that everything he will give up so that he can have us. So when we hold this wafer in our hand, it is to remind us his very body was ripped apart in pieces so that we would never have to experience that pain and separation. So let's take this in remembrance of the gift of his body to us. And as we sang today, we are washed in the blood of the Lamb. The blood of Christ has somehow, I don't know how, but somehow washed over me, washed over you and purified us so that we are a new creation. We are acceptable before our Heavenly Father. So as you take this, remember the gift that Jesus offered on the cross to us. Let's just worship and sing, but let's do it with an expectation that while God might be invisible, He is very much real. And He is with us, and He is for us. Amen?